Radio 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, California, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online and archived at www.kpfa.org. After this breaking news update with Mark Miracle, we'll have Jennifer Stone and Stone's Throw. San Francisco police have arrested more than 150 same-sex marriage backers who blocked a street to protest the ruling upholding Proposition 8. Hundreds of protesters streamed into an intersection near City Hall following the announcement of the state Supreme Court's decision this morning. Officers cited protesters for failure to obey a police officer and jaywalking. The state's high court upheld the state's gay marriage ban, but said the 18,000 same-sex weddings that took place before the prohibition passed are still valid, a ruling decried by gay rights activists as a hollow victory. In a 6-to-1 decision written by Chief Justice Ron George, the court rejected arguments that the ban approved by the voters last fall was such a fundamental change in the California Constitution that it first needed the legislature's approval. As for the thousands of couples who tied the knot last year in the five months that gay marriage was legal in the state, the court said it is well-established principle that an amendment is not retroactive unless it is clear to the voters that the proposition was intended to be retroactive, and the court said that was not the case with Prop 8. Moreover, the court said it would be too disruptive to apply Prop 8 retroactively and dissolve all gay marriages. Doing that, the court said, would have the effect of throwing property rights into disarray, destroying the legal interests and expectations of thousands of couples and their families, and potentially undermining the ability of citizens to plan their lives according to the law, as it has been determined by the state's highest court. That's a reference to the high court's decision last May that the prohibition on same-sex marriage was unconstitutional. While gay rights advocates accused the court of failing to protect a minority group from the will of the majority, the justices said that the state's governing framework gives voters almost unfettered ability to change the California Constitution. Gay and lesbian state lawmakers said they were disheartened by today's California Supreme Court ruling, but compared same-sex marriage to the long struggle for civil rights. Members of the California Legislative Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Caucus held a news conference shortly after the court upheld Proposition 8. They predicted that gay marriage supporters would fund an initiative campaign to place the issue before voters for a third time. A number of protesters of the court's decision are scheduled for the Bay Area and the Central Valley. Gathering will be held at San Francisco City Hall tonight at 5 p.m., followed by a 6 p.m. March to the Martin Luther King Memorial at Yerba Buena Gardens. In San Jose, there will be a gathering at Cesar Chavez Plaza at 6, followed by a march at 6.30 to City Hall. In Oakland, a 6 p.m. rally at the First Unitarian Church on 14th Street. In Santa Rosa, a 6 p.m. rally at City Hall, followed by a march. The same thing in Fresno, 6 p.m. rally at City Hall, followed by a march, this time at 7. Other events are planned in Concord, Danville, Fairfield, Modesto, Napa, Palo Alto, Pittsburgh, San Mateo, and Walnut Creek. Details on those events at the website dayofdecision.com, dayofdecision.com. More news headlines at 4, and please join us at 6 for the hour-long evening news from Pacifica Radio. 
Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. In darkness, from the ones who walk in light, light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw <laughs> today. Is a Tuesday, May the twenty sixth. Um, seems to me I've been gone for a while. Anyway, ah,、uh, if you've been listening to the news, you know that the struggle continues. Ah,、uh, I guess, I guess the socio-political struggle is never ending. I don't know what it is with me, but the last. Oh, the last few months I seem to have hit a <laughs> hit a, hit a rock in the road.、Uh, uh, I had a whole pile of things here with me that I brought down, and I spilled them all over the bus, and I can't straighten them out. And I think I'll just skip them all today and jump into Gertrude Stein. I do that because of the the news.、Um, this business of、um, <laughs> gay lib, oh God, gay liberation.、Uh, This has been going on for so long. A friend of mine the other night was complaining, and she said, "Why is it that so many are willing to fight for gay liberation, and、uh, so few are willing to stick with feminism, with、um, women's rights?" And、um, I said, "Well, maybe it's because gay rights is sex positive.、Uh, maybe feminism has gone out of fashion because." It depressed people. Anyway,、uh, I guess all I'm saying is I'm tired of thinking about it. <laughs> I'm tired of thinking about it. I know that I'm、uh, I'm grateful that people are willing to、uh, to fight this fight. It just seems such a Sisyphus task.、Uh, you know, it's it's. I, I feel like an old person saying, "Didn't we do this before?" Uh, yes, as my younger son said the other day, he said you have to do it every ten years all over again, at least every generation. I said, well, the generation used to be thirty-three years. weren't we supposed to, you know, weren't we supposed to be home free for a while?、Um, anyway, no gibberish, Jennifer. No gibberish. No, no wringing of the hands. Sit you down. Yes, I think I think the last time、uh, this came round.、Uh, It seemed to have sorted itself, as the Brits say. Yes, we've got that sorted, and now here it comes back.、Uh, I just think, I guess, I keep thinking of all the places in the world where people can get past all this nonsense, where they can move on to the good stuff, you know, study、um, neurology and the brain and figure out how to make people. Truly wise and sensible. We're still fighting all the old fights. That's what it is that makes me so tired.、Uh, you know this business of、uh, 
uh, the fight that that the right always pushes. You know, it's this thing where it doesn't really matter whether we win or lose. They'll just keep us busy scrambling around, you know, screaming for, uh, you know, to save Roe versus Wade. And it isn't any good. Um, they'll, what is it? They'll use it as a fundraiser. I think of it as an industry. I noticed that years ago when the um, abortion boys were going at it, and I realized that it had become a profession. It's all about the money. Follow the money. It's a way to raise money on the right. I guess I guess I'm too tired to think is what I'm telling you. Uh, what I'll do today is I'll... I'll just stick to Gertrude Stein because the the story is that Gertrude Stein is the individual who gave us the word gay. She had a book. She wrote a book called A Long Gay Book, in which she said everybody was very gay, 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 and she used the word over and over and over again for pages and pages. There are a lot of people who say that I'm wrong about this and that there is another source for the use of the word gay, I don't really care. Uh, I have three familiar essays in front of me. Yes, I used to write familiar essays because I thought people liked them and they were publishable, some of them. This one is called Gertrude Stein in Circles. Three familiar essays like Three Roses and all of them red. Spelled both ways, R-E-D and R-E-A-D, you know, Gertrude. Anyway, this first one <laughs> is called Genius is What Happens When You're Looking for a Way Out. Civilization, said Gertrude Stein, begins with a rose. If art is civilized magic then the three roses of Gertrude Stein are the magical mystery of modern poetry. When Gertrude Stein was lecturing at the University of Chicago, a young student in her seminar asked her for the meaning of her phrase, rose is a rose is a rose, unquote, right? She answered, now listen, can't you see that when the language was new, as it was with Chaucer and Homer, the poet could use the name of a thing, and the thing was really there. He could say, O moon, O sea, O love, and the moon and the sea and love were really there. And can't you see that after hundreds of years had gone by, and thousands of poems had been written, he could call on those words and find that they were just worn-out literary words. The excitingness of pure being had withdrawn from them. They were just rather stale literary words. Now, the poet has to work in the excitingness of pure being. He's got to get back that intensity into language. Now, we all know it's hard to write poetry in a late age. We know that you have to put some strangeness, 
something unexpected into the structure of the sentence in order to bring back vitality to the noun. Now, it's not enough to be bizarre. The strangeness in the sentence structure has to come from the poetic gift, too. That's why it's doubly hard to be a poet in a late age. Now, you all have seen hundreds of poems about roses, and you know in your bones that the rose is not there. Now, I don't want to put too much emphasis on that line because it's just one line in a longer poem. But I notice that you all know it. You make fun of it, but you know it. Now, listen, I'm no fool. I know that in daily life we don't go around saying da-da is a da-da is a da-da. Yes, I'm no fool. But I think that in that line, the rose is read for the first time in English poetry for a hundred years. Gertrude Stein goes on in this lecture um, to explain that the excitedness, excitingness, not excited, that's very important. I just hit, this one hit me between the eyes again. Gertrude used to say, she said, it's much different, she said, most of the time, these poets, she said, are just excited. That doesn't help matters. She said, you've got to be exciting. You have to create excitement and not just be all hysterical the way I am today, all fussed and flustered and upset by things. Anyway, she says that the excitingness of pure being is not the same as being excited. An artist must be exciting, not excited. And like history, this takes time. <laughs> I have another quote I love from Gertrude Stein. I used to use it with students, but they didn't get it there. They didn't like it. Um, uh, she, she, she said, let me recite what history teaches. History teaches. Anyway, uh, one of the most common rebukes directed at Gertrude Stein during her lifetime and even today is that she is or was precious, that she indulged in art for art's sake. Now, I have to come right out and say that this is true. Hmm. Never any question about it. Now, listen, I'm not stupid. I mean, I, Jennifer, am not stupid. I know that in daily life today, art for art's sake is verboten, especially when there's no money in it. People are always saying to me that I'm such a snob watching Masterpiece Theater or something. I think they want me to sit around and watch reality TV and prove that I'm a good proletariat. I don't know what they want, but anyway... My problem is I like to be engaged and I like to have uh, something uh, that at least, if it's not amusing, at least it has to be engaging. Uh, as Gertrude used to say, even uh, back in the uh, middle of the 20th century, she said uh, things are either interesting or they're not. And that's all there is to it. Anyway, uh, 
Art for art's sake is a curious phrase, if you come to think about it. Uh, Theophile Gautier, G-A-U-T-I-E-R, uh, wrote back in 1834 in a book called uh, Art for Art, in French, yes. Uh, he denounced any art that intended to be utilitarian, to draw a moral, to serve any cause. Gautier wrote that anything useful is ugly because the useful expresses need. And the needs of men, he concluded, are disgusting. Well, <laughs> I, for one, do not think Gertrude Stein found human needs disgusting. I imagine that she believed artistic expression itself was a human need. She needed to think. She called her process conscious consciousness. At the same time, she liked being the very human being that her little dog knew. Art did not dehumanize her. She adored all the bourgeois comforts as well as the bohemian and even the lesbian pleasures of living. She was living in Paris early in the 20th century. She was concerned about meeting all her own human, human needs. She did not find them disgusting. She did distinguish between human nature and the human mind. For her, this distinction was not the mind-body cross of modern despair. For her, it was the release from biological definitions, the liberation from sex roles, gender roles, the freeing of her mind from the prison of her body, much as she loved Alice Toklas. Gertrude was first and foremost a Steinist, a narcissist in the sense that she was in love with her own reflective soul. She said that human nature is not the human mind. She wished to sort out her thoughts and distinguish them from her feelings. Now, as we know, this was probably a good idea at the time. But today, I think the intellectuals have taken it too far. <laughs> For Stein, thinking was being. If you are a thinker, she wrote, you will change the language. You will not use the words the way the others do. What she did had not been done before. So some resented it, some laughed at it, and almost no one would publish it. There was no money in it, uh, at least not until she was nearly 60. And even then, the money wasn't for what she considered her serious work. Uh, it was for a charming pseudo-autobiography by Alice B. Toklas, which, of course, Gertrude Stein wrote. <laughs> she said Alice couldn't find the time, but um, she wrote as if she were Alice. You remember. Uh, this charming little uh, book was published in 1933, the year I was born. It's a collection of anecdotes and stories about the eccentricities of Gertrude's many friends in Paris, painters and poets. 
It was humorous and original, but uh, as Stein herself said at the time, yes, she said, remarks are not literature. <laughs> About that world of the Paris expatriates, Sherwood Anderson wrote, It was a time of a kind of renaissance in the arts, in literature, a robin's egg renaissance. It had perhaps a pale blue tinge. It fell out of the nest. It may be that we should all have stayed in Chicago. <laughs> After the popular success of the autobiography of Alice B. Talkless, Gertrude Stein was creatively blocked. She says that the money was funny. She felt recognition had come for her personality, not for her real literary work. She had trouble getting started again. She wrote a kind of detective story called Blood on the Dining Room Floor, which is about Alice's cooking. Uh... <laughs> I couldn't get into that one. I, I tried, but yes. Uh, in our pragmatic, materialist, even barbaric world, the practice of any craft which is not done for profit is, by definition, the work of a dilettante. Or a genius. <laughs> Which was Gertrude? Yes, I think, if I remember correctly, it was both Oscar Wilde and Gertrude Stein who, when they arrived here in America, got off the boat saying that they had nothing to declare but their genius. <laughs> anyway, they, of course, were um, putting us on a bit. This is the gay lifestyle, if you like, the uh, the mask which people wear in order to avoid being hurt or humiliated. Anyway, I think that the evidence suggests that Gertrude Stein began writing in order to dig her way out of a Victorian identity crisis. A psychological cul-de-sac brought on by the knowledge that she was a lesbian and a rather insecure lesbian at that. She describes herself in a work called Things As They Are, not published until after her death. She describes herself as, quote, rather desperate as a young woman. It was perhaps her rather desperate inner life which drove her to write. Then her art took over the it she says you are when you are creating something, not the you you are when you are you as your little dog knows you. That is your art, right? Uh, Gertrude needed a muse. She found Alice Babette Talkless, a wife for life. Now, a muse who can say yes to you who can say yes to your writing, to your work, and who is also a good cook. 
That's enough to turn anyone into a genius. So at first, her work was a way out. And then, it was a way in. Finally, for Gertrude Stein, writing was a religion. In her worldview, consciousness was a religion. As she said, in the 20th century, consciousness replaced the soul. Her teacher at Radcliffe, William James, remarked that any final or total attitude towards life could just as well be called a religion. And in that sense, her work is religious because it is forever concerned with finalities. She always said she wished to be historical, and now she is. There is the question of meaning. Did she mean it? What she wrote that is, and did she make sense of it, the meaning of it? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but really, finally, it does not really make any difference. Are there too many theirs there? Is there where she is or isn't, or did she make that up? Sometimes, just as she says, it does make sand, just as with everything else. Where there is, is a question. Where is there, and where is it not? Not in Oakland, ha-ha, but she loved California. She loved space. She said that here on this coast, there was more space where people were. Space where people were not than space where people were. And there, that was very lovely. Things were very lovely, or they were very interesting, or they weren't. She wasn't into adjectives. She told Hemingway to cut out the adjectives, and so he became a very masculine writer. She was his father figure when young. Then she went after the nouns. Then she wrote Tender Buttons. In 1914, she explained in tender buttons, and from then on I struggled with the ridding of myself of nouns. I knew that nouns must go in poetry, as they had gone in prose. If anything that is everything was to go on meaning something, and then on and on, about the feeling in the verbs, and the meaning in the nouns, and the meaning in the morning, and the feeling in the evening, and she and Alice both loved vistas and views, and Alice said Gertrude loved a view, but loved to sit with her back to it, or Gertrude did. With all her love of the open spaces, Gertrude never met Isadora Duncan when they both lived in Oakland, Isadora dancing on the beaches and living right down the street. Stein wrote, quote, Two things are always the same, the dance and war. When at last Gertrude did meet Isadora and the Duncan Menage in Europe, she dismissed them as, quote, carnival people. She was a Republican. I hate to tell you. Stein was not into dance as far as feet go. There is a description of her at a dance, gently swaying to and fro and then stepping first on one foot and then on the other. Uh, it was in her, of course. But it was not in her human nature, it was in her human mind, and she wanted to dance in her mind. As Virginia Woolf says, the glow comes 
When we light the light at the base of the spine with good food and wine and the light becomes language, a beginning again being existing. In repeating, Stein wrote, is going on being existing. What people love, they repeat, she said, and what they repeat, they love. Of course, not always. And I do get tired sometimes of her run-ons and ons, but they are like the begats in the Bible. You can skip over them if you like. Still, they are not there just to hypnotize you. They are there to be going on existing and begetting being. They become being. Sometimes the repeating says something. In the opera Four Saints in Three Acts, there is a chorus. The wed, dead, dead, wed chorus that goes on repeating those two words. And yes, that says something. And in a long gay book in which we can count hundreds and hundreds of gays on page after page. And yes, that says something about how many gays there are in it. And some say it is Gertrude who gave us the word to mean what it means. But others deny it. This has been Jennifer Stone. I was reading to you from my essays. On the late, great Gertrude Stein, uh, a gay hero uh, of massive proportions, one of our great American writers and lovers. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can.